0: I'm Alex Delcero, I'm Alex Soro. I'm Alex Soro, and we have, we have, we have just Eddie, it's Eddie, Eddie Sauer, Needed to France. Eric Marie, it's Mahe Drysdale, it is Sir Matthew Henson, thank you for being here. I'm Alex Delcero with Rower's no Choice, and I am doing another podcast, and CJ hates when I do this, but we're like 94, 95 now, we're not quite at 100, but I have someone, boy, uh, maybe the second ivy league coach that we've interviewed ever which is a big deal uh the second doctor we've ever interviewed which is a probably even more big deal but i can't call him doctor i just cannot do it he is the head coach of columbia lightweight men's rowing this is nick lee parker welcome to the show thanks guys I'm glad to be here so i got a lot to talk about um one topic nick is um Lightweight rowing, but we're going to wait for that one. Okay, let's 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 get let's get let's get to the now first. Okay, so same question I ask everybody: Where were you? How old were you when you took your first rowing stroke?
1: I was a freshman at the Ohio State University, and I was on the Olentangy River when it still had a dam, so you could row three thousand meters in the middle of Ohio State's campus, which was awesome, and it was. Pretty grungy, and you didn't want to touch the water, and you could see by looking at it that it was a no-go zone. But had some really fun, had some really fun memories of being on the Olin Tangi with teammates, and that kind of that first fall. We don't start till September, so there was an awesome like Christmas in the air, and it was a really great learning environment.
0: What what year was that actually?
1: That was the fall of two thousand one.
0: 2001 all right well i feel really good right now because you got me by a couple years uh you're a few years older than me Uh, i'll just i'll put it that way um 2001 what an interesting time so one of the most probably famous rowers at ohio state is a gold medalist at the olympics yeah was there that aura of him around still like what was going on then so i'm going
1: to tell you this story which is I can't believe that this happened now that this is part of my life. Volpe, Brian Volpenheim comes back from the 2000 Olympics and he's around and he's training and he's at the boathouse. Volpe at this time has a beard. He's got, you know, his Volpe aesthetic, which is pretty sweet. And, but he's kind of like hanging around doing some training. We're five weeks into novice rowing. We don't know anything. And we're just going to like do a 2K test. Like, okay, let's, you know, there's a hundred guys trying to make this team. They got to cut some people. We're going to make it really tough and see who quits. For whatever reason, Volt was hanging around that day. He's like, yeah, I'll like join in. So he sits down next to me. Here I am, Volt's right next to me. I don't know who this guy is, but in my head, I'm like, I'm pretty fit. Like, I got this. I'm just going to go however fast this guy who's an alum, like who's, you know, got this beard and is kind of like lolling around, doesn't look like he's super engaged. I'm just going to go as fast as he goes. And we'll see what happens boom out of the tanks hitting 130 this is awesome 100 meters down feeling good 200 meters down "Eh, this is not gonna go great 300 meters in i'm wrecked i'm just like oh man this is by the time 500 hits um there i've fallen apart i look like a complete basket case i take enough time to recover Volt finishes in like a 559 or six minutes, something like crazy, has enough time to completely recover from this effort and look over at me and be like, come on, man, let's go. And starts yelling at me and coxing at me and getting me through the last like bit of my pretty embarrassing first 2K ever. And that was how I met Brian Volpenheim.
0: What a what a story. I mean, to be in Ohio at that time, coming off the Olympics, I mean, he's we all know what happens in 2004 right like everyone knows everyone in the running world knows what happens right and then you think about i could just i could see this guy now to you he's a washed up alumni with a beard and whatever because like look he got fifth place in the olympics what a month and a half or a year before right i didn't even know he was an olympian (laughs) i thought he was just an alum
1: hanging out at the boathouse i'm like wow this guy can't hang it up he loves this there must be something really awesome happening here. I'm going to stick around.
0: So that was your first 2K experience to be next to one of the greatest American rowers of all time.
1: Yeah, very, very humbling. I got a heavy dose of reality real quick.
0: Can you remember, did you at least break eight minutes on that piece? I did. I went 7.04. Wow, that's still good. good. For the middle, like,
1: thousand being real rough, like, I was... At the end of the day, it wasn't too terrible, but not sub-seven.
0: Listen, that's, look, you, you, you and I both know that's a pretty darn good score for someone out the gate. Uh, so what happens at Ohio State? So it's a, a club-level program. It's 2001, 2005, you know, that that, that era, 2001, 2004. Um, any successes there? Any big events that you remember?
1: A lot of learning. A lot of learning. I, you know, Peter Steenstra, who's now the head coach at Batesbury, he's had wild success with that program, um, was our head coach, and it was at a time when clubs were still competing at the IRA, so there was a bit different, uh, a bit of a different environment, I think, than collegiate rowing, and um, there had been some success with the Ohio State guys. And it hadn't been consistent. It had been up and down. There had been moments where you really thought, oh, this club could get up and, and go somewhere. Um, and then came along my class. And we loved rowing. We were taught to love rowing. Colin Truex, the coach um, out at UCSD with the women, was our novice coach, really did teach us to love the sport. We just weren't very good. That was the real story. Um, and. But we loved it and we took care of each other and we trained pretty hard. And Peter was pretty patient with us. And I mean he was hard on us, but he gave us a lot of good knowledge. And then we started recruiting other people. And so, you know, my junior year, a sophomore year, I think we lost to Purdue it by a pretty fair margin. It wasn't really a race. And my senior year, you know, we were down by half the length and sprinted through to win by a foot or so. And that was pretty awesome. That was a big deal for us. That was special and that was a great moment. But I think the best part about the whole experience was getting to be there with those other guys. And I think that's one of the things most people cherish.
0: Well, so I, how did you find rowing? Was this like a walk-on thing? Like, you, Did you know rowing existed prior to Ohio State?
1: I knew of rowing, but growing up in Missouri, there was not rowing. I think uh, people may have thought St. Louis Rowing Club had started to exist, but it was pretty far away from me. Um, But I'd always been around water, and I was like, oh, man, like, I like being on the water. That looks fun. Like, I could figure that out. I'd seen it on TV. Sure. And uh, when I got there, they have, like, you know, an involvement fair, and they had a boat out on the Oval in the middle of campus. And I walked up, and they were like, hey, you're tall. Do you want to row? And I was like, I was walking over here to see, like, hey, what do I have to do to row? And they were like, great. And so that was kind of how it started. But uh, I really joined, because I went to school to be a musician. I played the bassoon love playing music. And I said, if I don't find something to get me out of like a practice room for two hours a day, I'll go crazy. So I decided I'll make this rowing my thing. It'll be how I get away from music for a while. And I'll have a, an excuse. Uh, and that was how it all started.
0: Okay. So, wow. Okay. I I got a bunch of things now to to ask you. Um, (laughs) musician, you're clearly not a professional musician unless there's something that you do moonlighting that i don't know about but i mean you know young nick lee parker 19 years old i'm going to be a musician to now yeah. a growing coach uh what happened in the four years at ohio state that made you clearly not want to do that um a couple things first i love playing
1: music i still love listening to music i'm the kind of guy who will find a recording and then find another recording of the same classical piece. And I will listen to both over and over again. And I'll decide, okay, this is the only one worth listening to. Um, that to me is actually pretty fun when it comes to music, right? Um, you know, and I always joke, like there's one recording of Brahms 4 worth listening to and the others, nah, like, they're great, but there's one that really does it. So that's the kind of stuff I love about music. I didn't find the music world was great for me though. Um, you have to be, really engaged on yourself as a musician in order to make it. You have to be really, really into yourself. And I don't mean that in a negative way about the people who are musicians, but you have to be pretty self-centered because you. it is harder to make a symphony than it is to make it in the NFL. The competition wow. is really fierce. And the environment I just didn't think was good for me. It was not my cup of tea. Um, It just felt a little bit cutthroat in ways that I didn't get excited about. Um, It was Mean Girls, but for real. And I didn't like that. I loved playing, but I didn't like the rest of it. And I had a conversation with my professor and he kind of, you know, this was after my senior year when we were talking about next steps and, um, you know, I was telling him like, hey, look, i I don't want to go do some of these auditions. I don't want to go through with it. I'm gonna do something else. And he we talked about why and he starts laughing. And I'm I'm pretty worried because this is a guy I went to the school to study with this person, Professor Chris Wheat. And um, he kind of laughs and he goes, Oh, that's why I retired from the Toronto Symphony. And so we had a good bonding moment. Like, you know, i realized, all right, this is this is real and we you can love the music, but you have to be fit for that environment. You have to want to be in it. Um But getting to the rowing part, learn something really valuable from studying music. And that was how to practice. Musicians are the world's best practicers. We know this from research. We know this from looking at the brains of musicians where incredible things happen, such as if you listen to a piece of music right now, Alex, like part of your brain is gonna activate. But if a professionally trained musician just thinks about that piece of music, the same part of the brain is gonna turn on as though they're actually listening to it. Whoa. Whereas if you think about it, it'll be a different part of your brain that's gonna work. I mean, there's some really cool things that happens in musicians' brains. And I thought, man, athletes don't practice very well. And I didn't mean it in a negative sense, but they don't have the experience. They don't have a thousand years of people studying, hey, how do we make people great musicians and great performers? And how do we develop that consistency we just don't have that in sports. And I thought, man, there's a real opportunity here to help athletes and coaches and teams apply some things that I figured out in music. And I'm still learning those things today. So that was how the music part got connected into the rowing part. And I ended up here.
0: Holy cow. Nick, <laughs> this is I was not anticipating having this conversation. So this is uh this is getting me energized. Well, first off, I want to acknowledge Mean Girls for Real is one of the funniest things I've heard someone say on podcast. <laughs> because I immediately could visualize what you're talking about. Like I could see it as if it was happening in front of me. So that's hilarious. Um, okay, this musicians being best at practicing, uh, something hit you, something struck you your senior year going into becoming an adult. Um, I, I, I love that blend. What do you do with that blend then? What happens after you graduate? Where do you go to, 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 to make that happen?
1: Yeah. So uh, also in my senior year of college, I snuck into the Joy of Sculling uh, coaching conference because I thought maybe I want to try this what? out. I mean, now we all know, but like, it's okay.
0: Um, me you actually roommate... went, to the joy... you went to the Joy of Sculling at like 05? Like you just said, hey, screw it, I'm going to go.
1: Yeah. let figure <laughs> this out. And it was awesome because I was listening to some, I remember listening to Al Morrow talk and I'm like, this is awesome. This was great. These were really great people, great coaches, talking about what they were doing, thinking about how to approach coaching. And I think these are really great conversations. This is fun. Like I'm I'm into this. This is my wheelhouse. Like This is the kind of place I want to be. And so I, you know, uh, Jimmy Joy had been Peter Steenstro's coach. In college at Hobart. And so we got connected and we talked a little bit and I'd been thinking about grad school because my professor had encouraged that then Jimmy encouraged it, Peter encouraged it. And so I was like "All right, I'm going to go and I want to go to grad school. I applied to the kinesiology program at Purdue where they had a graduate assistantship open in coaching the the men's novice team and i got that but i delayed for a year i went i lived in germany for a year um finished some studying there did some work at the german spo- uh, sport uh Köln, and was like all right this was a fun like gap year came back went to grad school coached the novice boys at purdue had a great time coaching them um finished my degree, my first master's degree uh, there. And I also discovered that, you know, it's not just the sport that's important, it's where you are and who you're working with that's really important. But it was not the place for me, like the rowing program at that time was not great. Didn't feel comfortable being an openly gay person. My neighbor was a member of the KKK. It was a what? tough environment. It, was outlandish. I think there's a lot of really great things that have happened at Purdue since the university, the town. um, A lot really changed in the last like 15 years and I think that's a really good thing because when I was there it was the, the school was great, the education was great, but all the other things weren't great and it made me realize a lot about what we're trying to look for as adults and why we're trying to create growing communities and what needs to go into it and how do we approach these communities of athletes and coaches so that it's actually really fun it's really positive it's geared towards what we're trying to achieve which is being faster better rowers and you know learning how to perform um so purdue was really valuable for me i learned a lot of what i didn't want in a rowing environment um those guys though that i coached they were fun five guys who weren't super talented, like, engine-wise, didn't have, like, a big, you know, weren't great 2K scores. Three guys who knew how to pull, and all of them got together with a really solid coxswain named Graham Ludmer, and they just, I mean, this, like, wooden sectional Dorigo that they rode at the Dadvilles and they missed a medal by, like, a foot. It was pretty impressive.
0: I, I, I like this uh, theme in your life, this learning theme. You know, you learn... In four years at purdue that you didn't want to be a musician you know you learned one or two years at purdue that you didn't want to be in that kind of environment um all right so you learn what not what you didn't want what happens next what do you do next in your in your career um you know so
1: that i almost was out of coaching at that point you know i would had a, it was a pretty rough experience at purdue the coaching was great but everything else gave me a lot of pause wow um And, you know, I was applying for jobs, and I I wasn't getting much traction anywhere, even though we had some pretty good results. And um, the long story short is, you know, John Pescatori and Mark Davis with the Yale Heavyweights, you know, offered me a role as the the volunteer coach. And so I went there. And I had a four-hour talk with John in my interview. And we didn't talk that much about rowing, but I left and I go, I feel like I'm a better rowing coach. And that was my first thought. I was like, I feel like I know more about the world and people and all those other things that I didn't that I didn't like in my previous experience. And I was like, okay, this, this could be really good for me. Um, and so I stayed at Yale with the heavyweights for two years. And I think I probably more than anyone loved working for John Pescatori. Um, You know, John was hard and demanding but never unreasonable to me he would come through and check the boats after i rigged them and you know the pitch was down to the 10th of a degree at all the times so he'd be like hey this isn't right um so it was wow. super exacting and the musician's brain of me that i had about like really digging into stuff i loved that to me i was like okay like you want it perfect i'll show you perfect um really he coached me pretty well. Um, but he also spent a lot of time helping me see what should I fix when I'm looking at rowers? What should I leave till later? Maybe this isn't impacting things as much as I thought. So he gave me a really good lens on just kind of viewing rowing overall and taking a step back.
0: But this was a job you said volunteer. So I know a lot of young men and women that do this, that spend a whole year, um, with a program, uh, how, I coached the master's How at New Haven that? Rowing Club.
1: Okay. And the, those, they, they helped me pay my bills. I coached the graduate school rowing team at Yale. They had like a graduate school. So I was up at 4.30 every morning, um, out the door by 4.40, uh, Starbucks on the way out to the boathouse, knew my order. I'd walk in at, you know, 5.05. They'd hand me the, the coffee. I'd walk out on the water, 5.15 with New Haven Rowing Club. Finish there, back to Yale. We'd have like an indoor morning session, so I'd jump on the spin bike and I'd be coaching guys in the tank. So we'd run the stadium, then I'd go to work. Uh, either J Crew, I worked at a, a soup kitchen as well and a catering shop, and then I'd come back in the afternoon, get in like my own workout, go coach the guys, get home at like 7 p.m. and repeat. Except on days where we had the grad school team, where then I'd coach till 9:30 at night, and then I would go home and repeat. And that was a two-year. Schedule. It was exhausting.
0: <laughs> You're, that is just uh, what it. That is what it took to get it done. Your your work ethic. Uh, you know, I, it's so funny. I think so many people tend to not gloat. They don't want to promote themselves, and they 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 they're embarrassed sometimes to say the things that they went through. Um, you know, I, I, I'm glad I get to know this, and people get to know this about you that you spent two years grinding it out at arguably one of the best schools in the country, Yale, right? And giving away your time to learn and, and experience and J. Crew, Soup Kitchen, Starbucks. I mean, it's master's rowing. Uh, it's it's an unbelievable amount of time you dedicated and worked at being a great coach, right? Because like mm-hmm. that was the whole point, right? The whole point was I'm going to fund my lifestyle to be a great coach. Um, Completely. And And, and Yale although great program they weren't in their dynasty yet you know they hadn't had who they have now it's a it's right. it, so many building years uh, you weren't really winning a whole lot in that time period i mean washington was winning everything all the time yeah uh and well in fact well in 2008 it was uh, wisconsin so um because you were you would have been at yale in what 08 09 um i got there in the fall of 08 so
1: i had yeah that's correct. yeah right.
0: So then, okay, so wow. Now you got two years under your belt of just being miserable all the time. I can't imagine, but just not sleeping. I loved it. Um, I was exhausting. I was exhausted, but
1: I loved it. And when it was all over, I kid you not, I slept for about three weeks straight. I mean, I it, when it ended in that summer, I coached the junior development camp with Jesse Foley, who ended up you know, later coming to Columbia, and we all know the great things he's doing now. Um, but you know, when I left that junior development camp that last summer, I mean, I went, I was home and I was out of it for weeks. I was exhausted, but it was so worth it. Um, it kind of gave me like all the experience I really needed. And like, I didn't grow in high school. I didn't have some of the other experiences. So for me, I felt there was a lot of catching up to do if I was going to be the coach I wanted to be.
0: Do you think that that was? Uh, did did you reach that level that you wanted to be? Like, was those two years like? Did you feel like you got everything out of it that you could?
1: For the most part, yeah, I did. And you know what? I still managed to have some fun along the way. Like, I made some great friends. Like, there were still some. There's some pretty good memories of those times. There's some pretty tough ones. You know, I think uh John gave me a box of cliff bars once because that was about all I was gonna eat for a day or two. I mean, it, it, it there were tight, there were tight times. Um, but they were really good times. And you know, even some of the the athletes I coach, like I still talk to and I'm pretty proud, like when I see their accomplishments. So there were really good relationships that were made. And again, I keep coming back to you. I think those are that's part of like this athlete-centered model that we're trying to create in coaching like really knowing the athletes and you know being engaged to what is happening then but also what's happening with them later
0: a subject that I don't typically ask or talk about is parental support so um look like I'm just because I I have three children and I can't imagine I can't put myself there yet because I'm not I'm not there yet my children are too young but um if my daughter or son came to me and said I'm not going to be that thing that we've been dedicating our lives to for the last 20 years. Uh, I'm gonna go work for free in Connecticut uh, and I think it's gonna work out. Wow, uh, did you get support? So you can imagine when I told my parents,
1: I'm gonna go to college and I'm gonna work in music. Right, they're like, oh <laughs> man.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: And I have awesome parents, right? And like, you know, people have heard me talk about my parents, like my parents are incredible. And we have had a journey to get to this awesome relationship we have now. And at the time, I was thinking, you know, like, whatever. Like, I, I didn't, you know, we, had, we hadn't yet really talked about being gay. We hadn't talked about any of this stuff. So I was kind of like, yeah, whatever, mom and dad. I'm going to go do my thing. Um, but they were pretty concerned. And then you can imagine, then I started getting some job offers to work in music when I graduate. And these weren't little, I mean, one six-figure job offer. Wow. Like, people were like, oh, like if you're a really well-trained musician, you can make great money. Um, and I played the bassoon. It wasn't like there's, you know, a ton of bassoon players out there. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. So then suddenly we're talking about, yeah, I'm going to turn down jobs where I can make a real income and uh, I'm going to go work for free. So they hit the panic button a little bit. And they were, but, you know, they had a pretty good idea that like when I've set my mind to something, like it's going to happen. Um, and you know what they did is, we traded for Christmas. I cooked family meals for the week. Like I, they got me home. They bought all the stuff. And my gift to the family, because I didn't have any money to buy gifts, was cooking. I'd been working in like with the catering business and I did other things. So I was like, I, I can cook some great meals. And this is what I have to give. And, um, you know, they would help me out now and then with little things when I was really in a pinch. But um, they also created ways for me to feel like I was giving to my family.
0: Like I said, this what a what a story. I mean, just getting to where we are here. I I don't typically have these kind of conversations. Uh, making meals for your family for a bus ride home. I mean, if that's not a Hallmark movie, I don't know what is. I mean, <laughs> that is that is awesome. Uh, okay, so back to rowing. I back think to this is the point that you go to Columbia. Is that right? At this point? That that is correct. Okay. So how did you find that job? How did you get involved in that job? I cold called Mike Zimmer.
1: I was dating a guy in New York and I just said, you know, if this is going to work, like I need to get a coaching job in New York. And so I just cold called Mike Zimmer. Uh, Amazingly, he picked up first try he was in his office. Hey, Mike, you know my name's Nick. I'm um, John's assistant up at Yale but I'm down in New York because this is where my personal life is headed and uh, I want to come like work for you. <laughs> and he said all right so we met at the boathouse like a few weeks later we had a conversation um, that was in the in the fall of kind of 2010 and then I started up in January um, and I'm glad I had a little break there. I didn't I had left Yale in the summer. So I had a fall where I wasn't doing much coaching and I was miserable. I thought this, I was, you know, I thought it was gonna be great. Um, I thought about going back to school full time for my doctorate then and even had a, a fellowship in Germany at the German sport university. And I was like, uh, ah, so I postponed that, took this job at Columbia, was kind of gotta see what's going on and um things just unfolded in a way where I was like oh this could be a great place for me
0: love brought you to new york that is so funny uh, <laughs> it's like it had nothing to do with some job that you're like i saw it on road 2k it's like you know what i kind of love somebody uh why not and you, but you chose columbia i guess it's that it's that uh ivy league environment right i mean it must it must be must be it so was- funny.
1: It was, you know, I interviewed at Row New York and they decided I wasn't a good fit for them. I had talked to NYU, which had a club um, and, you know, that they weren't really, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't what I wanted. I wanted something serious. And so like the only option if I was going to be in New York was Columbia. Like It was the only game in town. And, you know, Mike and the heavyweights had had some great success um they had some really good athletes you know that 08 crew was a pretty good crew um and you know nine They they had some good years in there and so I was like oh like this is great and when I talked with Mike and John I was like oh these are people I can work with um and I still call up Mike you know we still have good conversations he still provides a level of mentorship that's really valuable to me
0: when did you get the head coaching job on the lightweight side
1: four years later it's been two years with the heavyweights Two years with the lightweights as an assistant, um, and then in the coaching shuffle in the summer of 2013, uh, became the lightweight head
0: coach. Okay, I, I want to get I want to get into a little bit of this now. This is where yeah is the the meat and potatoes of the uh, of the conversation. Like, all right, let's have this conversation. Um, Here we go. Well, I don't want to um, dismiss the fact that. Columbia lightweight men have had a lot of success under your leadership. I mean thank you. It's you know when I was so when I was coaching high school there were a couple of lightweight kids and I didn't even know how to communicate to lightweight kids. I'm six foot three, 195 pounds and I was like I don't I don't understand lightweight rowing it doesn't make sense to me you know you guys are fast cool but all right and the first thing they said to me was well I want to go to Columbia I'm like Columbia why? I'm like well because they got a really good you know lightweight program and I'm like oh God okay so I, I did spend some time learning about lightweight rowing at that point and I can say you've had a lot of success but I don't want to talk about your success focused yet I want to talk about what's happening in the lightweight rowing world right now okay? Quite frankly, I'm hearing different stories, right, because there's a lot of people talking. Sometimes it's in, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. There's a lot of chatter. Nick, can you just tell us what is going on at the collegiate level first in lightweight rowing? What is happening?
1: The big picture of what is happening is lightweight coaches and alums and kind of everyone who's a stakeholder, Um, and believes that lightweight rowing really has something to add to the educational experience, to what the athletes are going through, Um, they're trying to find ways to promote those lessons that athletes learn as a member of a lightweight rowing team and how valuable they are and how they set people up for success later in life. Um, So we're really talking and having an open dialogue about what should we do, We see the value in this because we're watching it unfold in front of our eyes and our alumni, they know, oh man, I really learned a lot by getting to go through this experience and I wouldn't have had it if there wasn't lightweight rowing. And so how do we provide this great experience that we had for other people and
0: how do we share more about what that experience is? Okay, pretend to me, like pretend that you're talking to a five-year-old here, please. Yeah. Um, how much different is the experience of a lightweight versus the heavyweight? Like, you know, I guess you're assuming the 105 mm. pound man or a woman, you know, 125 pounds or whatever, is the experience that much different? The rowing is not
1: crazy different, but there is something that I believe really separates it, and it is that like the, the weight is an equalizer. So when we get to our championships, the power differences between the top, you know, four or five crews are pretty small. And so you finally get this aspect of the sport where he who rows best or she who rows best, they're going to win, right? That is the most important kind of factor once you get down to this little bitty element, and it can really make a big difference. And so for people, you know, who are engaged with it, it's like, oh, there's a perfectionism element that is present in all rowing, but is highlighted and exacerbated by the weight management aspect. And I think that's a that's a part, it's just another constraint that makes it a little bit more challenging and provides a different lens on what the athletes are going through. And I do find that that bit of perfectionism it demands really elevates the experience where They're The athletes are thinking about more than just how hard am I going? So I've got to go as hard as I can go while doing this, while managing everything else. And that's a pretty complex problem to be solving. But once you're doing it every week in college, in the racing season, you get pretty good at managing a lot of stress and a lot of different factors. And that's a valuable life lesson. It doesn't mean that those same things aren't happening in heavyweight rowing or in any other aspect. I just find that they're a little bit highlighted because of the weight management. And that little bit of difference is, you know, the straw that can break the camel's back on pushing people into a new
0: level of performance. Let's talk about that weight management. Um, yeah. I, I, I know it's difficult um, to identify when someone's having a problem. You know, when, when an individual is having a problem, uh, mentally, physically, emotionally, right? I'm I'm sure the answer is yes your coaching staff identifies it you guys seek it out but um, what can other coaches at the high school level and the college level do to identify when someone's having a problem because I sure as hell do not want my son or daughter sucking weight and being crazy about their bodies because of the environment that they're put in right or they they choose to be
1: in yeah. for youth rowing if there's any kind of question whether like, the, the athlete in, is, can safely make weight, I'm not a big proponent of it. I would say, look, if you have any doubts at all, just row, row open weight. And you know, now that U.S. rowing is moving away from youth lightweight rowing events, I think we're going to see that happen more and more. And I think that's a really good conversation to be having. You know, one of the things we know from research is that is, as you get older, you can handle the weight swings better. They have less effect. So a 25 or 26 year old athlete can literally impact their body, like have a bigger weight swing. They can do more without seeing an effect on their performance compared to a 19 or a 20 year old. And right, same thing, our seniors, they could always do a little bit more, but we're getting to a place where we know more about that. So what I would say to coaches and parents is if you have any doubts, it's okay. Teach your your son or daughter, to love the sport and kind of enjoy it and there's a place for them if they want to be a successful lightweight rower and it's in the college scene where we have coaches who are going to be really engaged and they're going to be managing things at a really high level with professional guidance and support
0: are there triggers or things that you've seen in athletes that were they were they were they were doing things that made you say ooh I need to talk to him or her about lightweight rowing are there triggers things that you've seen um
1: The the amount of sweating that people come in when people start getting cagey about talking about their weight, usually that's a sign that we need to have a conversation. Um, Anytime when I feel like transparency and kind of open dialogue is being reduced, that to me is a sign of, hey, we should have a conversation. And how you go into that conversation is the next important part. Because if we get athletes on the defensive, because we say, hey, it doesn't look like you're doing this right, that's not going to really help us get to an answer. So we say, hey, what's going on? How are you feeling about this upcoming weigh-in? What are your concerns? Really talk to them like an adult, like an elite athlete who's trying to do something. Because if they're stressed and concerned, it's also because they want to perform. And there's an intersectionality there that we as coaches or, af- or parents or trainers, anybody who's involved, we have to find if we're going to have a real conversation with those
0: athletes. You said earlier, uh, youth rowing going away with lightweight rowing. Um, does that harm collegiate rowing? Does it harm the growth of lightweight rowing at the collegiate level?
1: I know there's going to be a lot of different opinions. I believe with the kind of conversations we're having amongst the lightweight coaches in the college ranks, it can actually be a boom for collegiate lightweight rowing. We can say, hey, there is a place for you to get in on this sport. Uh, and you don't have to do it in high school. And we have a number of athletes who come who are doing their first way in the spring. They rode heavyweight or openweight in youth events. They had a great time. They learned to love the sport. They were rowing in great boats. And I believe that there really is an opportunity to say, hey, we don't have to have this on the youth side. I know that's not the opinion of everyone, but we can say when you do get this opportunity, we're going to do it really well For every college lightweight, uh, or as men, or or as women,
0: how challenging is it for? Trying to, I want to. This is where CJ might uh, edit, uh, just because I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to formulate a a question. Um, How have you found it to be challenging? Or, oh gosh, do you run into youth coaches and high school coaches that? are just so against lightweight rowing that it becomes a problem communicating to their athletes? Has that ever happened?
1: If it has, those coaches haven't revealed that around me. Pretty, you know, I I would say that is more of the case. If that's really been going on, I haven't seen much of it. Um, But I think when I've talked with youth coaches, a lot of them are concerned about the same things we're concerned about. Like, what if Johnny goes and does something stupid because he's hiding or lying about his weight? I don't want it. I don't want that for him. I don't want that for our program. I don't want that to be what known for the rowing club where kids, you know, make questionable choices.
0: Sure. And I
1: think that's a really that's the way that I kind of look at all of those interactions when I'm talking with coaches, even when they're against it. Really, it's like, uh, I don't know how to manage this. I don't know what to tell the kids to do. I don't know how to work with them and support them as they're trying to make weight. And if you don't have that knowledge, that's scary. And so what do you do? You like, you push it away. You say like, well, that's, I don't want to go here because I can't actually provide what I'm supposed to do. Like I can't be a coach with knowledge and information to guide these athletes through that process. Cause I don't have it. Hmm. And that's what I feel when I feel people like talking, like, I don't know lightweight rowing. It's, well, yeah, like you don't have the information or even if you do, like you don't have the resources to support and manage it. And so that creates a tricky environment.
0: Like we don't want to do any harm. How uh, How many colleges offer lightweight rowing for men in the country?
1: Varsity programs, there are 15 that I am aware of. Fifteen or sixteen.
0: And how many? How many? How many men are on your program? How many athletes do you have?
1: We have thirty-five on our squad.
0: Is that like a low number, high number? Uh, compared? Um,
1: I would say it's a little more than the average overall, but it's not a super high number.
0: So I, I, I don't know. It's so funny. I've been rowing for a long time, um, and there are always I always have questions about. Collegiate rowing and scholarships and all that other stuff. Does Columbia offer, um, uh, like, you know, scholarships or funding for athletes for your your, your kids?
1: As with all Ivy League schools, there are no athletic scholarships for sports. What Columbia provides, similar to other Ivy League institutions, is need-based financial aid. There are some different qualifications and restrictions. Our international students um, have to go through a second review process in order to process in order to qualify for aid. Um, so there are some differences between the schools, but generally they work to provide need-based financial aid. And for some students, so for me if I'd gone to an Ivy League school, I would have paid less than I did when I went to the Ohio State University on a pretty hefty scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity for rowers who want to compete at this level to get their financial, Means taken care of. It doesn't always happen. Like there are challenges with that, um, but there's always,
0: there's usually a pathway. Are you, are you doing a lot of recruiting um, overseas? Like, are you trying to find a lot of kids in other countries to row for you in Columbia?
1: We were doing more overseas recruiting before the pandemic. We've had some changes in our financial aid, so we still keep tabs on that. We still do overseas recruiting. We have a couple athletes coming in next year from abroad that we're really excited about. We think they bring a lot to our team. Um, as many people know, Alexandros Midis is a fifth-year senior for us who, you know, narrowly missed qualifying for the Tokyo heavyweight single last year in our gap year. So we do uh, for Cyprus. Um, so we do have some athletes who are coming internationally, but they're more of you know the icing on the cake. Like that can't be the foundation of our team. Um, and nor do we feel that it meets like the mission and
0: purpose of our school to do so. I don't know if you can answer this because I've asked this to a lot of college coaches and they always skirt around the damn question. And it's uh, it, you, don't have to, you don't have to it's not that hard of a question. Um, it's like, it, can you describe to me your ideal recruit? Like, who's the high school kid that's out there that could fit really well? And forget about culture for a minute like the structure of a great high school athlete that could fit Columbia. What does that look like?
1: We actually talk about this when we think about who do we want to recruit? And um, we talk about any athlete who can meet some of our performance standards. And that generally lines up with our historical like, recruiting. right? So for us to recruit an athlete who hasn't broken 630 on a 2K test is pretty rare. They would need to be pretty light and have some pretty incredible results. Um, So we have some performance standards that we're using and that we can take around. The important thing that we actually consider beyond those once that happens is we want someone who's excited about Columbia for the university. They need to be thrilled about the school, the structure of the school, the location. And that has to be important because there is always a chance that rowing isn't a part of your life for the four years while you're at university. There could be an injury, there could be, we don't know, right? Um, And so I say, look, if you're coming here, you're coming here for school first, that has to be the priority. And that's really, I think, comforting for students and for their parents to hear when they're in the recruiting process. The next part that we talk about is we want students who are kind and empathetic and realize the value of a team goal. And if we don't feel that we're gonna get that from a prospect, um, that to us is like, hey, this might not be the right place for this person. And one of the most important reasons is because we've developed a team structure that really fits our school. So from the beginning of fall, all the way until spring break, we grow or practice together as a team three to four times a week. That's it. Like we've had built, we've had to build the system out around the school in order to make it work with class schedules, academic demands, all of the other intricacies of anything that goes on in New York City, and we can make it work, but we need to find students who are not only meeting the standards, but they also have a really deep interest in the school because that is exciting, that helps drive purpose, and they're willing to work on this team goal and know that, hey, we're not always going to do it the best way for you, we're doing it the best way for us.
0: I I've asked. I mean, that's wonderful, and I appreciate you giving me performance standards. Uh, I know there's more to it, but that is a great baseline. Um, I usually ask these like Division two, sometimes Division three schools, sell me on why I should go to your your program, and it's part of this interview process. This this podcast, there really isn't. You don't need to do that at Columbia. <laughs> I mean, it's historically a great school. It is one of the Ivies. It is in one of the best cities in the world um you really don't have to sell it that much plus you guys have had so much success um last question for you is the pandemic we're over it sort of i mean there's obviously remnants of it what was the biggest change to your team in that march 2020 till today can you identify one thing that shifted the change that you just have in your head
1: Hmm. If I'm being honest, the value that the current team places on getting to practice and being together is much higher than it was before. When you have something taken away, sometimes you don't know what this, you know, what this sport or being at practice or hanging out with the lads at the dining hall after, you know, a hard workout really means to you until it's gone. And so we've had instances this year Where athletes on the team have stepped up and said, Hey, like mm, that might expose us to getting shut down for a couple of weeks. That's not gonna happen. No go. And so I see athletes now taking a different level of accountability and responsibility just for the overall program. You know, youth in their, you know, 18 to 24 who have been double vaccinated and have their booster are not at risk for serious disease but they're at risk for getting shut down for two weeks. And that's going to take away something they have come to really love and value. And so I see that is the biggest change. It's not that people were flippant before, but now that ability to step up and say something, we we, we don't say call people out, we ask our teammates to call people in. That is happening with more frequency and it's being done in a way that's, hey, this is about our team goal. This is what we're trying to do. And I think that is the biggest change I've seen.
0: It's very fitting with your mantra on your hat, be here now. Um, tell me what, What? give me the story on this hat that's sitting on the top <laughs> of your head right now.
1: You know, uh, I was in Miami with some friends for a weekend and we go to a pretty awesome art exhibit, Super Glue. So if you're in Miami, I encourage you to go. You get a walk through clouds. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> and... Uh, my friend Dan had on this hat and I saw it and it just, it struck me. And usually every year I try to come up with something that talks about, hey, this is this is kind of our mantra that we can we can latch onto this year, something to give us purpose. Um, and so we've had a number of different ones over the years. And we had a couple of years where I didn't find anything. And, and I felt that that was missing. I'd really been looking this year for something that I felt captured hey, this is what we got to do. And I saw this hat and I said, Dan, you've got to tell me about this hat. And so he's like, this is at this this hat at a juice shop where I go after my Monday workouts. So before I got out of Miami, like I headed over there, saw the hat, boom, got it. And now I'm wearing it around because I think this is one of the most important messages that we have right now, which is we have this opportunity to be back on the water to race again, to get out there and test ourselves. And the only way we're going to really do that is to be here now. And it's kind of this constant reminder, hey, let's make sure we're here now. Let's keep things engaged on what we can control and what we're doing going forward. And this has been
0: uh, been a great find. Well, there you have it. Some random juice bar down in Miami. Uh, (laughs) Maybe we'll find out where that hat is for all the listeners out there and all the people watching. Dr. Nick Lee Parker, this has been an awesome time talking to you about your rowing career. I love the story of Brian (laughs) Volpe
1: in Ohio State
0: (laughs) getting absolutely crushed at a 704 to now being one of the top coaches at lightweight rowing in the country. Thank you so much for being here and everyone tuning in and watching. We have a lot more coming at you in the next couple of weeks. Um, And if you want to learn more about Columbia Rowing, and Dr. Nick Lee Parker. There's going to be a lot of links here uh, in our YouTube channel and Instagram and also on Spotify. So thanks for tuning in and more from us next week. See you. Thanks for having me, guys.